Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. The interesting thing is, you know, having taught these students for many years, they feel pretty powerless and ground down in their own way. I mean, they're going to go on to have often scintillating lives in lots of ways, but they also feel like they don't have a lot of choice. There's a kind of zero-sum game in which they participate in. That if they don't catch the brass ring, they're not going to be able to lead the kind of life that they want to lead. And in many of these cases, for example, I, I teach in political science, so I have a lot of students who go on to, to study the law, to, to, to go to law school, and they end up working incredibly long hours, especially if they want to work for one of the bigger law firms in one of the major cities in the United States. They have very little time for family life. They have very little time to do the the great and noble things that they might have initially wanted to do, thinking about changing the constitutional law and so forth. Very few people get to do that. Mostly what they're going to be doing is working with clients and building up chargeable minutes uh, and spending long, long hours in the office. So I think we ought not to illusion ourselves uh, that uh, there's a kind of power and empowerment that comes with simply acquiescing to the form of what we think of constitutes power. And in many cases, you can end up in a condition in which you actually have relatively little actual Liberalism created the conditions and the tools for the ascent of its own worst nightmare, yet it lacks the self-knowledge to understand its own culpability. The sobering words of American political scientist, writer and teacher Dr. Patrick Deneen from his latest book, Why Liberalism Failed, published by Yale University Press. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is liberty? And has liberalism failed because it has succeeded? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with American political scientist Patrick Deneen, whose latest book, Why Liberalism Failed, has been sending shockwaves across international liberal democracy systems. Where Patrick writes... Our carbon-saturated world is a hangover of a 150-year party in which, until the very end, we believed we had achieved the dream of liberation from nature's constraint. Patrick goes on to state, Liberalism's success today is most visible in the gathering signs of its failure. It has remade the world in its image, especially through the realms of politics, economics, education, science and technology. So has the great liberal project failed us, and what is a post-liberal alternative? Hello, my name is Patrick Deneen. I am an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Previously, I held academic positions in political science at Princeton University and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I've written a number of books with an interest in political philosophy, the history of political thought and democratic theory. My most recent book is called Why Liberalism Failed, published in January by Yale University Press, which has uh, the thesis that uh, the political system we've all become accustomed to in the West, liberal democracy, is in certain respects failing because it's succeeding. And so in some ways, its uh, crisis is uh, unfolding in some respects due to its own nature and its own internal dynamics. Really well done on the book, Patrick. I have to say it was an expansive read, yet it was also quite compact in another way. But um, your argument is really well put together and I must commend you on that. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can play it by ear from there. I'm going to throw you a quote from British philosopher and writer uh, John Stuart Mill, if that's okay. Mill once said that conservatives are not necessarily stupid, but most stupid people are conservatives. Do you agree with that? 
That's, I always found it to be a very condescending observation on John Mill's <laughs> part. Um, well, I, I, uh, I, I suppose you asked me that because I probably have the vibe of being a conservative, and there's a, certainly a part of my thinking that's, that's quite conservative. Um, and so it won't surprise you perhaps to hear that I disagree uh, with, that, uh, with that claim, uh, although um, I, would, I would modify it in, in a certain way. I would say that it's certainly not the case um, that, um, and I would agree, that uh, conservatives are not necessarily stupid. And in fact, I would say that uh, in the modern academy, uh, it's often the case that uh, the more conservative you are, the more you're frequently challenged, uh, uh, your perspective is challenged. So you have to, uh, in certain respects, sharpen your mind constantly, whereas if you're more on the left side of the political spectrum, the more comfortable you are. So in an interesting way, in the academy today, it's actually our conservative students uh, and arguably our faculty who are, who are often the best arguers because they're constantly being confronted. But Mill's second point that most stupid people are conservatives, I would, I would put that differently, which is that there's a connection, I think, between a kind of intuitive conservatism, a kind of desire to preserve a certain way of life, um, and let's say um, a relatively more settled way of life that doesn't promote the idea of um, uh, frequent mobility and upward mobility and uh, constant change. And so you could say in some, in some senses, one of the defaults of liberal society is to promote a highly mobile society constant uh, change, constant progress, constant alteration uh, of, of the way of life, and so that it's not necessarily stupidity that makes people conservative. It's a, it's a disposition to preserve a certain way of life. From Mill's perspective, however, that looks stupid, uh, but I, I would disagree with that, that uh, characterization. So what does a good society look like to you, tell me, Patrick? Well, of course, all, all human societies are always imperfect, uh, and maybe we can say that all societies are um, necessarily uh, always going to have faults in them, uh, and and I suppose part of writing this book wasn't wasn't an exercise, wasn't an attempt to be an exercise in nostalgia, but an effort to say uh, and raise the question of if there's a next, what's next? And I conclude the book by suggesting that uh, we have to appreciate the achievements of of the liberal political order um, while being aware of its own sort of self-destructive tendencies, uh, and and some of those tendencies I would point to as being. Um, Massive concentrations of power, both politically and economically, um, in ways that would have made tyrants of old uh, uh, green with envy, uh, that uh, the, the sort of straddling structures of the modern state uh, and the increasing concentration of economic power, uh, it seems to me a real um, deep and profound structural challenges for the continuity of liberal society. Uh, and so I would say that uh, as a start toward a, toward a better society, we would see a uh, um, a, a kind of decentralization uh, of, of both political and economic power, which is a, it's an interesting question of how you would do that, and I don't, I don't have a roadmap from A to B, so just speaking in kind of a utopian form, a kind of decentralization of power that would, I would think in certain ways, uh, lead to an interesting form of empowerment of individuals in a society, in a polity, and in the economy today, in which people feel um, at once freer than ever, but also in some ways more powerless than ever. Your book has been described as disruptive. I'm just wondering how do you feel about that? Because clearly you uh, believe we need a lot of global change in leadership and in terms of our overall direction, in terms of bridging the gaps between rich and poor and, you know, all the um, inequalities within the system. I know you touch on education and climate change and lots of different uh, challenges facing all leaderships. 
But I'm just wondering, um, was that your um, stated aim, you know, when you set out to write the book, to be disruptive? Uh, I suppose so. I mean, with a title like mine, I suppose I can't deny that, uh, deny that charge. Um, On the one hand, I think people have read the book, particularly in light of recent, very recent political uh, events, Uh, obviously the election of Donald Trump, uh, Brexit, uh, you know, things that are happening, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe. And I should say, uh, this is a book I've been thinking about, or certainly ideas I've been thinking about for well over a decade. And so um, I can't say as uh, I I foresaw uh, any of this specifically, although um, I'm not surprised uh, by what we're seeing uh, in, in our political world. But I meant it to be disruptive in the following sense. That I think, um, particularly when you work in a university today or you work in the kind of intellectual realm, one's task is often to try to solve the specific problems or to see problems that we might be facing as fixable within the sort of systemic norms that we take for granted. In other words, that, that we have this fishbowl we swim in and we think about changing the pH levels um, in a sense. But what we don't think about is whether, in fact, the water is simply bad. Uh, whether we need to actually change the water or change the fishbowl, uh, that we work within a kind of paradigm of liberal democracy. And if the book is disruptive, it, it really is an effort to raise the question, are we at the end of history, right? To use Francis Fukuyama's uh, old phrase, um, his claim was that liberal democracy was the final end station of political development, uh, that uh, there was no further sort of possibility of any other political form after liberal democracy. And my book is, is an effort to raise the question, well, what if, what if that's not true? And what if, in fact, uh, the kind of deep, it seems to me, profound and, and, and systemic challenges we face today are not in spite of liberal democracy, but in many ways because of liberal democracy? Patrick, you argue in your introductions that the greatest current threat to liberalism lies not outside and beyond liberalism, but within it. I thought that was very interesting, but I'm wondering would certain leaders actually recognise that currently? Well, it is. It's interesting. I, I've been surprised. The book has been has received a lot of attention, uh, not only within the United States but internationally. Obviously, we're speaking today, uh, and I think it reflects uh, certainly among the most thoughtful political leaders. It reflects um, uh, among thought leaders. We could say those people responsible for the sort of media reflections. It does reflect a felt sense of crisis uh, within within these circles. And I've been contacted by a number of uh, political leaders and actors, both in Washington, D.C., as well as uh, in London. I'll be traveling to London uh, later in the spring uh, to speak to some members of parliament. There's a real concern, I think, uh, about the uh, systemic health of liberal democracy. And an interest, I think, in thinking through, are there things that can be done at the level of sort of everyday policy that might forestall or at least um, you know, possibly uh, act as a kind of corrective to some of these tendencies? Um, now, my book wasn't specifically written for uh, political actors. Interestingly, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an academic, and I kind of wrote this book for you know, future John Locke's and future Jean-Jacques Rousseau's, that this book was really written as an effort to think anew about our political nature and about, broadly speaking, um, the, the basic foundations of political society. So in the end, I mean, I'm very happy to speak with these political actors, but I don't see the book uh, narrowly as kind of... Uh, a prescription for certain kinds of directions in, in, in policy. I loved your uh, passages with um, Wendell Erdman Berry, the American novelist and environmental activist. He's had a lot to say about community and social disintegration, hasn't he? And in terms of how we're all living and understanding the world. Yeah, in fact, I think the most gratifying uh, aspect of the book to date is I received a very nice note from Wendell Berry 
just recently um, commending me for the book. And that to me was uh, any any harsh reviews are, are uh, erased by by praise by Wendell Berry, uh, uh, whose work I've, I've long read and admired and benefited from. Uh, Berry, if your listeners aren't familiar, Wendell Berry is, a, is an American uh, farmer, uh, author, uh, activist. Um, he writes novels, poetry, essays. Uh, he works and lives uh, in a kind of very rural part of Kentucky. And he's a great defender of the virtues of small life, small town life, uh, communal living. I suppose something familiar uh, in Ireland, uh, still an extensively rural uh, country, with, of course, great pockets of, of, um, of, of urban concentration, the likes of Dublin. And what Barry really seeks to do, I think, is to appeal, especially to those people who are living in the great urban centers, um, to think of and sympathize with and identify with the people who are in the rural places and the ways of life that are necessary in some ways to maintain our own lives, especially through farming and through a, um, through a way of life that is often very conservative, that often is a, uh, seeks to pass on a way of life from one generation to the next and to call, call to our minds the disruption, especially that sort of, we could say broadly speaking, modern liberalism, the modernity itself, the disruption, uh, especially that industrialization uh, and kind of highly, let's say, uh, highly managed and managerial forms of farming has brought to the countryside and to the land in ways that are actually proving to be very destructive of the very sources of our sustenance. Uh, so Barry is really one of the, seems to be one of the great prophets uh, in, the, in that very old sense somebody offering a kind of warning to those of us who may be living in a certain amount of complacency about our station, about our situation, disconnected from those places from which we, we just don't think about uh, the sources uh, of our sustenance uh, and calling to mind the need for us to, to be sympathetic with it, to be in, indeed in, some, in many ways supportive of a way of life that may be very opposite to our own. It goes back to your first question about John Stuart Mill, right, that if we simply regard rural people as stupid, we're actually in some ways insulting the people who provide us with the deepest forms of our own sustenance. Is the development and the intense development of uh, cities and possibly within that technology and all the infrastructure that goes with that, do you think that has maybe contributed to the marginalisation of not just rural areas, but kind of country and lived voices from the country? I have a, I have a chapter in the book on technology and what I really try to try to articulate there is that we often think of technology and especially in the form today of the internet, um, uh, increasingly the technology of things, the ability to control things from a distance, uh, really the, you could say, the, the effort to sort of eliminate space that exists between people, right, through electronic media. Uh, but what Barry would point out and what I would point out is that, you know, farming is a, is a technology, right? We've always, we've always had technology. There's all kinds of technology. There are technologies that um, are very, you could say, are not disruptive, that seek to sort of preserve a certain way of life. So that um, it's not really a question of technology itself, because we are technological creatures. We, we couldn't live, we couldn't survive uh, without technology. We, we're tool-using creatures, and we're language-using creatures. All of these are technologies. The question that I try to raise in that chapter is, how is it that we are predisposed to use technology? And how is it that we are likely to deploy technology? And here I rely on a number of authors uh, like Sherry Turkle, who's written a book called Alone Together, Nicholas Carr, who's written a book called The Shallows, a number of essays, Stephen Marche, who wrote a book called Is Facebook, I'm sorry, wrote an article called Facebook is Making Us Lonely. 
uh, which emphasize the way particularly that technology that we deploy conforms to a deeper liberal political technology, which is especially oriented toward the liberation and separation of self from others. And so that our technology, the way that we use our technology, conforms to our political technology, if I can call it that, and that it is oriented to assisting in the realization of the liberated, free, autonomous, choosing, self-making individual that lies at the heart of the aims and ambition of liberal democracy. You you cited over 70% of Americans today, Patrick, believe that their country is moving in the wrong direction and half the country believe its best days are behind it. And you argue that, you know, most uh, institutions of, uh, of government are sh- showing uh, declining levels of public trust. And you talk about, you know, the problem of corrupt elections and, and so on. Some people would see that as a little bit grim and somewhat hysterical and very, very negative. Mm. What do you say I to that? So. Right. I, I suppose so. Uh, although, <laughs> I don't know, when you have 70% of the country, uh, at least the United States, saying the country's going in the ro- wrong direction, and <laughs> I, I, I wonder if that hasn't gone up since that, since that survey was, was, uh, was, was undertaken maybe a year or two ago. Uh, it may be hysterical, but it seems to reflect a, a deep, deep uh, form of misgiving and anxiety uh, broadly across the nation. Uh, you know, the level of trust uh, in the United States, and I assume that it's pretty similar in Europe today, uh, the level of trust, especially toward public institutions, you know, the kind of, uh, the, the, not only institutions of government, but uh, across the board, uh, the media. Um, we saw the lowest levels of people tuning in to the Oscars. Uh, so a kind of lack of interest in Hollywood or declining interest in Hollywood. The Hollywood is no longer sort of seen as representing America, but it's in some ways a kind of elite set of voices that no longer reflect the of the of the broad public, and you know we could keep going down the line uh, that in institution after institution uh, in a democratic society. So we could say ultimately institutions that are somehow connected to the people and derive their legitimacy from the people, nevertheless, no longer seem to have the confidence of the people. And here again, we could really point to the government as the the key institution in which people have lost confidence, even though they are at least nominally in charge. And I think it's the idea of being nominally in charge that does reflect the idea that somehow if the elections aren't outright corrupt, and I don't mean to suggest, um, and I don't think I do suggest that they're, that they're corrupt, it's more that um, uh, the sense that no matter uh, who's voted into office, uh, that there's always a kind of permanent government in places like Washington, D.C., or in Brussels, or in the nation, in various capitals uh, across the world, uh, the developed West, that there's a permanent government that sort of operates constantly without regard necessarily to the popular will and popular control. Uh, in the United States uh, today, seven of the ten wealthiest counties in America uh, are in or near Washington, D.C. Yeah. And if we think about it, Washington, D.C. doesn't really produce anything. It's not a manufacturing city. It's not the financial capital of America. It's not New York City. And yet seven of the ten wealthiest counties are in or near right around Washington, D.C., which really does show the concentration of power results in the concentration of wealth. Uh, And I think in this sense, if one is not a wealthy person, the sense that one has very little voice politically and otherwise in the nation today. And you could argue the same whether it's in England, whether it's in Italy or or a lot of different other um, countries in Europe, that whether it's the capital and the nearest counties around the capital and everyone else is eclipsed. Yeah, that's certainly the case uh, uh, that uh, 
in the, I would say, more in the hinterland, mm-hmm. uh, there's really a, a, an increasingly a sense, and this is, this is striking, a sense that uh, the government is an entity completely separate from the people. And so I live in Indiana. I used to live in Washington, <laughs> where I was in the middle of, uh, of, of the capital city and, and uh, was very much um, struck by the enormous wealth and privilege of that, of that city. And moving to rural Indiana, things are much different. Uh, and one hears constantly the people expressing the view that Washington, it's as if it's a separate country, uh, uh, completely separate from where the people are and the interests of the people. And again, if, if, if we, you consider that this is a democracy, at least in name, the idea that the government is completely separate from the people seems a fundamental betrayal of the idea that ultimately the government is us. It's representing us. It's a representation of the people. So something has gone deeply awry. And in the book, what I suggest is that in some ways the irony, the deepest irony uh, that we're seeing uh, come about as a result of, I think, the logic within liberalism is that the very freedom that is prized uh, is indeed at the core of what liberalism is. Think of the word liberalism. It means liberty, right? It comes from the word liberty, libertas. Uh, That the freedom, especially the individual freedom, uh, that we think of primarily in private terms, the freedom to do what we want, the freedom to pursue our own interests, is really ultimately purchased at the price of a kind of decline of a sense of common good and a shared civic life, the idea that we have a shared fate. And the more power that's needed to provide for us the opportunities to pursue our individual goods, to pursue all of the things we might want to pursue, requires a, you know, a powerful central government and a powerful and wealthy economic system. But the more that that succeeds and the more that we're individually, individually liberated, the more actually we result in a feeling of powerlessness over the very tools that we've created uh, in order to secure these conditions of individual liberty. And so the deepest irony and paradox, and it seems to me why we're seeing uh, this crisis, at least at this political level, is the necessary and in some ways inextricable loss of control that the very form of liberty prized by liberalism itself uh, seeks to achieve. Do you think it could be argued, Patrick, that liberal democracy is rigged around the interests of the rich? Like if you look around today and, you know, you've talked about, you know, declining um, uh, rural areas 